Okay, everyone, welcome back to Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. Today, we have Jim Runyak on the, I guess we're on the phone. Is this a phone? I don't know if we call this a phone anymore. It's more of like a microphone going through the internet. It's really not a phone. Welcome to the show, Vice President of Technology at Mercatus Center of George Mason University, and um, happy to have you on the show. Why don't you just, let's just start a little bit about what Mercatus is and what you do over there, because it sounds quite genius. So I, I actually sit as VP of Enterprise Technology over the Mercatus Center, which is a uh, economic think tank closely affiliated with GMU. So it borders in the middle where as a think tank, it tries to remain agnostic to research that occurs so that it can be more free flowing and, and provoke civil discourse. So our motto is solving real world problems with real world ideas. So across health, health, uh, health issues, technology, housing, uh, fiscal policy and monetary policy, we have a wide range of scholars that do uh, direct work as well as contracted work with uh, one winning, having won the Nobel Prize, which is Vernon Smith uh, mm -hmm. in economics, as well as multiple other scholars who've written over 100 books across vast different subjects. So the bulk of us support them and their genius and try to help make their ideas come true. I also sit as the managing director, which is the same title in essence of the Institute for Humane Studies, where they look for making connections between scholars who have like ideologies. So in the world of the academy, sometimes a scholar who writes about a very specific subject doesn't know all of the people who are writing in a similar way. And so what for the Institute for Humane Studies is used, they use machine learning and uh, a lot of AI algorithmic work to try to measure sphere of influence of a scholar and then create ways mm. for the scholars to connect and collaborate with each other. So your job is, of course, to bring chat g t o what chat g t p chat g p t <laughs> i myself i'm screwing this up today uh to these scholars of course so that they can use that to um and to to um i don't know help their sphere of influence obviously not but as the vice president of technology how do you help facilitate this i hopefully, hopefully truly agnostic level of um of thinking here and that that's like a subject a much deeper subject for like i don't know not this show but how do you do that? Yeah, we um, we actually sit over help desk network, customer relationship management systems. We have another team that does machine learning and AI, and then another team who does all web development. So the bulk of our work, when we look at a system, all IT nerds, I, I, I guess, we have our favorites because based on education and experience we develop software or brands that we become very familiar with and prefer using because those are where we've achieved our greater successes so we have two labs so anytime we take on a project we start from the grass or the grassroots idea of rolling it out in in a developmental layer 
for any stakeholder to help us with needs assessment. And then it goes to staging where we try to round out feature sets uh, that stakeholders are requiring before it goes into production. So most of what I would say is we try to deploy science as a way of remaining impartial to the work because, you know, the phrase like there's a thousand ways to skin a cat and most problems that we face here, there's a thousand ways to skin a cat. And so by by doing that, we try to keep the door open for anybody who wants to actively participate to give them a chance at the table to say, here's here's how I can help you make that come true. For listeners out there, there's IT director, there's probably an IT director starting every 60 seconds at a new company where they've got multiple silos that they've got to take care of and then different projects they've got to take on, right? So is there anything for the listeners from a decision direction standpoint and a process standpoint, a piece of advice that you could provide as some sort of mentor to the listeners that would help them maybe not have a thought, maybe, um, whittle down the thousand different ways to skin their IT silo cat? <laughs> I think that's a really funny way of phrasing that. Um, you know, I have now been in IT for 38 years of my life. And I think that there is something about the role that lends itself to having to skin the cat repetitively because technical debt always never seems to go away what i would focus on is i would try to study as much about um how to look at thinking through doing your research up front for an ask you want to make and then studying like the art of war by sung su or studying jack i had that book sitting next to me yeah Sophomore year, high, sophomore year of uh, high school, so 1993. Anyways, keep going. Yeah, or something like the Jack Welsh Management Institute, where a lot of young IT directors, and I don't mean like chronologically in age, what I mean by young is length of time in the field with a broader-rimmed uh, decision-making hat that they have to wear they they tend to get frustrated with multiple organizational things like government education hospitals uh because politics and bureaucracy aside they tend to fall under the cfo or the coo correct both of those don't lend themselves to expertise in it sometimes yes but in quite a quite often you face a battle of how do i want to convince people to believe me so that i can make these changes for the better and not have to continue to to skin the cat so instead of trying to spend a bunch of time stressing out how you got to think outside of the box and be cheap in order to skin the mm-hmm. cat knowing that you're probably gonna have to skin it again in two years when technology changes uh-huh. i would i would spend more energy focusing on the bigger picture and providing 
sort of a SME or a subject matter expert framework to the people that are in leadership positions to make that make those decisions to show how your ideas not just fit the now and can maybe skin the cat for now, but actually prevent the cat from having to be skinned later. Okay, so you just blew my mind and, I, and I've been doing the show for a long time and you said something on another level that was new. It really is on another level. And I've heard it a bunch of times and I don't know if it clicked until just now. And maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just having a caffeine moment, which is very possible. Um, you said most of these IT guys are in a position underneath the CFO and the CEO, basically worrying, stressing out about saving money. They're stuck in that mindset. So this is a mind. Really, what this is is a mindset. Mindset. I can't talk today. I'm saying chat, chat G GTP, and I'm backwards. But mindset issue is what this is. And most guys are stuck in the mindset of I've got to save money. I've got to find the money so that I can appease the CFO and the CEO or whatever the C-suite, right? And the whole point of the show is trying to get a seat at the executive roundtable anyways. And what you're saying is stop thinking that way, make a paradigm shift and start thinking about, no, just sell them that this is what you need. But that's going to require Based on what you just said, someone that might not have enough experience, and it's not about, it's about time in the field, right? That's going to require someone to be confident about the solution to begin with, and then go sell that, you know, solution, whatever it is, which may change in another two years anyway. So they kind of, kind of always got to be confidently always be selling the executive um, management on them really it's more them and and they're that they're the right person to make that decision is that my understanding this correctly yeah i would maybe phrase it as the creation of social capital with the executive <laughs> that's beautiful say that but, again Go, but, yeah. phil don't say it that way that sounds uh you know used car salesman-esque uh could you say it as human capital please and could we use a little bit more sophisticated language yes please please repeat what i just said in a in a way that someone actually will buy it so I have never been successful at once in my life trying to be cheap because tending tending to be cheap ends up with a less than adequate or less than complete solution where where we seem to get stuck. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Asterix, editor of the show. This is and, and please keep this in the show as well, but please, my production team, that's the quote. Repeat that, please. I have never been successful in my life being cheap. This I, is it, man. This is the quote. I'm I, telling I you. have never been successful in my life at presenting something that was done on the cheap because it tended to create other problems down the road that escalated the cost. And then I had to try to explain why the solution I had just presented broke. Yes. And how many metaphors in life do we have? I went to the cheap mechanic. I tried to do this. I tried to do this cheap. No, it fell in. The roof fell in. Whatever it was. I tried to cut corners and this is what happened. Yes. Anyways. I would I would say that you're paraphrasing it correctly, that all the time it seems to be in relation to station of position. And so whether it's human nature or our culture specifically, when we're speaking to someone in the executive 
suite, we tend to change our level of interaction because we go, that's the CEO, that's the CEO, that's the CFO. That's, that's someone who controls a lot of things and possibly my future. And so we don't tend to tell them what they need to hear, but more what they want to hear. And beautiful. And and what I'm saying is is yeah, change the change the mindset to presenting them a solution, whether they want to hear it or not, to fix the problem indefinitely. Where I've achieved the most success and I've actually cut been able to cut budgets is looking for a solution with multiple sort of in, in entwined efficiencies that allow us to instead of like replacing one piece of software with another it allows us um to get better equipment and more software and different licensing and then hold that hold that thought and because it's gonna it's going to transition into um the jack walsh you know quote tell people enough right dot 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 but you've been in IT for 38 years, and I want to take this time to go back in time to 1985. And I want you to tell me, for all those people out there that were not alive in 1985, since that was your beginning of technology work, can you paint a picture for us? And it's people are going to love it that, that were around in 1985 as well. Can you paint a picture? And it doesn't even have to be 1985. It could be 1990. What was it like working in a company in IT back then? I don't know if maybe half of the people in your eyes would even remember this, but <laughs> I worked. If they don't the, paint a picture. Please paint a picture because it, uh, everyone will be. I worked for right. the the school I went to, and uh, we did for grades. We did punch cards, and so it was actually at that time it was still a vacuum tube computing that could read the punch card Chad to do calculations. For our student lab, we had Novell 111, and it wasn't even containerized at that point. Uh, like, um, Which means what? Which means what? Storing, storing user accounts and passwords. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so most of my job then was making the bnc connectors because back in the day we had 10 meg telephone or tv coax cable running between the computers so it was extremely rigid and difficult to to bend around the corners and it was extremely sensitive to db loss uh and it had to be all configured in a specific way so between those two, then at the same time, a lot of, I would call it the cloud, but I mean, it, it's, it's, it was all mainframe. So one of the first projects I ever worked on was actually replacing teacher computers with 386s to get rid of the, the green monochrome mainframe screen where they were translating the grades from the vacuum tube computer onto you know the mainframe sitting out and sort of in the school district and that okay so green screen what were they doing just typing in a grade for a student that was printing yeah, out on yeah, a report card yeah, that was yeah, it that's 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 what it would do yeah so 
what did they do? Go to their little computer and they had a list of students and they typed in B plus, C minus, 95, yeah. 76. That's it. That's it. That was it. That was all that was how the school I went to started grading. Mm. Mm. So you replaced a bunch of 386s. How did they network? A, net, a network card, of course, Phil. Or I mean, what did you I mean, wh- what was the network like? They had a was there something called the internet back then? Did it even connect it, to a message or anything? The, there was not the internet back then. We were talking about that at that time. It would have been the precursor, like bulletin board <laughs> systems. <laughs> so there's no, you know, because people start thinking like, oh, I mean, I just, we think natural things nowadays, like security. That wasn't even a thing. No one thought about, I mean, did you add did security ever, even first, um, when did hacking and that's just kind of a weird word, but when did security actually become a thought? For me, it was probably 1988 when some kid who wasn't doing well in school realized that I worked for the school and offered me $10 to change a grade for him. <laughs> that, that was probably my first thought about... He saw it on like TV. He saw it, was that When was that movie Hackers or something? Yeah, it, at least it, the 90s. It, it, that was right after Matthew Broderick. Um, <laughs> Matthew Broderick's yeah. movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. No, the Pages one grades in that, or, or was it a different movie? Um, I'm trying to think of the name of it, but it's the one where Matthew Broderick is a hacker. Okay, he hacks into the AI system and he creates global, he triggers global thermonuclear war. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Was that War Games? War Games, yes, that's yeah, that's correct. Okay, see, now, now it's become like a trivia show, yeah. So that completes our portion of um. I don't know. This is a new portion back in the day. We had another portion. Too. I was like, what did you do before the invention of the internet? But that is, um, yeah. Was it even, let me ask you this. Was IT a job back then? Like, did you think like, I'm going to get a job in IT? Or was it just something that you happened upon? Well, actually, my parents did engineering. So my mother worked with robots to teach autistic kids. And my my father um flew helicopters and designed navigation systems so for me i don't know if i even really thought about anything other than it because when i was really little i really just wanted to be a major league baseball player and i'd never really thought about anything beyond that but he would say go on your your vic 20 and i want you to write this program for me before you can Uh go to baseball practice Uh uh-huh and I would do that over and over again. And then my older sister was really good at mathematics. Where did so you grow up? I grew up uh, at Fort Lewis, on Fort Lewis military base in Washington State. Okay. So what were you like? Were the Mariners around back then? Who was your favorite baseball team? Pittsburgh Pirates. My uh, <laughs> grandfather lived right right next to them. Uh, and so I grew up watching them with uh, Roberto Clemente and, and other other entities. So we, even though we lived in Washington, the whole family voted for Pittsburgh Pirates. That's good. I, um, I mean, I grew up in Massachusetts, so of course I'm a Yankees fan. 
you know <laughs> how do you how do you be a yankees fan in massachusetts i thought you that's... cannot be you can yeah. that is an absolute i would probably i probably just have a bunch of people like you know absolutely i was not a yankees fan that's uh no yeah the last time i saw a guy even wear a yankees jacket I remember we were at some technology expo or something and one of my buddies from New York came with all of his Yankee stuff on and we were in Boston and people were just yelling at him walking down the street. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm like, I can't be seen with you. (laughs) Get out of here. Um, So beautiful. So that's what we did before. uh, I guess that's kind of what we did before technology. So that's, but I guess the point is, is it happened, um, somewhat naturally it wasn't like you know i don't know if people really you know no one really said like i'm going to get into this back then and just you just it just was you just were you just existed that way um i have a lot of questions about your dad and navigation systems and helicopters to be honest with you but that's probably for another time let's get back to convincing the c-suite that um cheap and budget savings aren't the way to go where do we go from there jack walsh quote and why do you pick that one um in other words last time you mentioned jack walsh said and i'm paraphrasing paraphrasing here tell people enough to know what they need to know to say yes why that quote so again i i think that when you move up into the c-suite you're sort of trained to watch the organization grow you're trained to look at the bottom line and where a lot of younger IT directors and managers, when they go to ask for money, they prepare their pitch from the sense of what it would take for them to say yes, not what it would take the CFO to, you know, to to in, invest in you or into their their idea. So Jack Welsh is very famous for saying that your mindset should always drift towards there's really no such thing as no when you make an ask of someone in the c-suite specifically for it you have to remember that it is not revenue generating that they're in all accounting terms possible they're looked at as sort of a necessary loss like uh so you you have to Think about your ask in that mindset of you're not balancing out your ask for anything else. So you have to speak to them along the way that they would need to understand what's it going to cost them? What's their return on investment look like? Why should they buy into it? What's the efficiency to the user? Are we going to notice any additional training costs by doing this? Answering those questions almost always leads towards I'm going to I'm going to provide you what you need to to say yes if I just tell you as the CFO that we are going to we are going to gain uh user provisioning efficiency by going to Gmail and use of Okta I don't know if that really means anything to them right what is what is how does the organization benefit by doing user provisioning so so the quote basically means if you think about your whole mindset your your presentation in regards to your ass should be 
what is the CFO needing to hear from me? And they're always going to be looking for what's it cost me? What's our return on investment? What's our ETA? How are we trading costs? What efficiencies have we created? And by by presenting along those lines, instead of being overly technical in the reasons why you want to do something, tends to lead to a lot more yeses than nos. Do you think the general IT manager has those skills to speak to return on investment? My the answer is yes. I mean, they they definitely have the intelligence level, but it's not rocket science, right? But do they need to go get that? I don't think it's that hard to learn these skills, how to speak that way. But is there some kind of resource or anything, maybe a podcast that they need to listen to called Dissecting Popular IT Nerds? Or is there any other resources that they could use to help? Is there anything that you remember that helped you? I belong to multiple different organizations like CIO Review, ISACA, and there are um, many different CIOs and CTOs of varying education uh, and experience levels in those types of mentoring groups. So school isn't for everybody. The simplest thing is to like look up, you know, Jack Welsh Management Institute or the leadershipinstitute.org and say, you know, where do I feel like I need to improve myself? Those those questions can be easily answered as long as you're self-aware enough or emotionally intelligent enough to say, here's what I think I'm strong in, here's what I think I'm weak in. Part of the problem, I, I hate to say it on a show like this, but sometimes IT people get sort of a, a a god complex and like there's nothing you can show me anymore and so i don't need that type of additional training instead i would i would say if you are realistic all of us can improve communication even when you've been in the field as long as i i have seeking out feedback from people that you trust and especially group like CIO review where they're all sort of equal and peers to you can only help, but you have to be self-aware enough to know I need to improve in this way. So last time we spoke, I wrote down a note that said, know your enemy before. What was that referring to? Well, so. And I'm uh, only saying that because it kind of seems to fit well here with either the enemy is either is either your ego as an it guy that thinks you're smart and no one can be taught anything or yeah that's probably the enemy yeah if you go back to reading the art of war in chinese culture japanese culture or asian culture i guess maybe in general they value diplomacy and the ability to talk through a problem without like confrontation. And so when you say, you know, like keep your enemies, your friends close, but your enemies closer, people don't realize how much your own ego gets in the way of your your own career path. And so 
being, you know, if you're going to take a class, the one I always recommend and I make my own teams do is go to a emotional, the emotional intelligence classes listed in the leadershipinstitute.org forum. Yeah. Yes. Empathy versus what's the other one? Brain not working. Um, in the words, there's a skill. There is a, the, the skill of listening is, is interesting because to be a good listener, you have to listen without thinking of your next argument in your head or what you're going to say to the person. Mm -hmm. That's what you're going to say, you know, for the person and really kind of active listening without, um, inputting your own biography onto the situation. Yeah. Another good way to describe that context is intellectual humility. So know what you know, and be, you know, be okay with asking for help. I don't, I don't think our culture does us a lot of service by making it as competitive as it is. Really? Well, that is, uh, that's interesting. Know, I never heard that. Know, makes if sense. You're, if you're young and you're trying to get ahead, uh -huh. the last thing you want to do is seem like you don't know what you're doing. So people <laughs> tend to go too long on a problem that's given to them because uh -huh. they want to be able to solve it and not admit like they've hit a roadblock. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. It's true. You could just be the person always asking for help. Yeah, but then it comes across like you're not qualified for the work you do because you're not actually solving a problem. If you're always asking for help, you know, what we tend to want to try to get our younger staff to do is we want them to tackle a problem, but know their limits. Mm. So during the hiring process, I will say, here's a situation. When, when do you say I need to call in my supervisor before I quit? I mean, you know, a good common example is I need to install a printer for the CEO. Am I going to sit there for eight hours if it's messed up? When is the line I'm going to draw before I ask for help instead of keeping the C the CFO down all day? Yeah. Right. That that's what we want them to recognize is that being intellectually humble is actually an asset. Knowing that I if I say, you know, I've got 20 minutes to solve this problem and I, I can't get it in that time, I'm going to be working on someone that really needs to get back on their computer. I don't want to keep them down all day. So I need to, I need to be self-aware or humble enough to say, these are the things I tried. None of them worked. Do you have any ideas for what to try next? Beautiful. And with that, I need three things from you. I asked you for three things last time and you said, I have three things. And I said, great, don't tell me now. <laughs> so of course you wrote them down and came completely prepared for this off the hook podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just make three things up off the top of our head. You know, this is like, you know, you're in a, you know, it was like, uh, if I asked you three things, how long would you wait before you asked for help on those three things? <laughs> Anyways. I know last time we talked, we talked about three things. Um, and I, I gave them all to you, but I, I thought we were, you, you, were you thought I'd write them down and we'd record yeah, and them and talk to you those bullet points. And, about them. Yeah. No clue. Yeah. This, this is, yeah. Both looking real professional here. This is great. Um, no, this is on purpose. This is on purpose. See, because this is how life is. 
So you want and we're in a fun- think tank now. We're in a think tank now. We yeah. need to think up three things. We need to think up three things. So you want three things about about what? I don't know. I wrote three things, and then I wrote 1984 with a line underneath it. And before that, I wrote 10 million things, and then I wrote Know Your Enemy before Dash. Sure. So this is this is how um, um, probably an undiagnosed ADD um, you know person is. Well, if if we want to talk about advice, most of that we've already covered. Great. If, if we want to talk about you know, what would be helpful to anybody that's listening right now? Yes. Three things. Let's do it. Yeah. I think that number one, the most important thing for me was having a mentor and a coach. So at one point in my life, I was probably, I would consider I was underperforming. And I had this teacher named Wanda Hurley, who said, I need to talk to you after class one day. Mm. And, and I, and I'm like, Oh, she never asked me. So I wonder what's, what's going on. She's like, you know, Jim, you're one of the smartest kids I've had in four years of teaching, but you are just blowing it right and left. I'm like, what do you mean? She's <laughs> like, you know, you should have like, was she using the sandwich technique? <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you should have 180% in this class and, and you've got like a 92 and I'm like, yeah, but you know, it's, it's easy. And I don't feel like I have to study. And what she was pointing out is that I was lazy. Right. And mm. I was laziness. Number one, don't be lazy. Yeah. I would say a mentor and a coach that will tell you the truth. Correct. I looked at it as um, a true friend is someone that t- will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear or a true mentor. They're going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Yeah, I would say the second thing is don't be in a hurry to get to the C-suite because a lot of young managers, when they promote up, they think now I'm a director and I have this title and I have compensation. But what they forget is as you move up, you move away from technical things and you start becoming like a counselor and a friend and and a confidant and you start sort of like becoming HR because now you run a team and your job isn't to institute or implement. Your job is to verify and, and create credibility that the work's getting done. Mm. And, and I think that a lot of people are ill-prepared for that first really, really hard conversation with someone you came up with that now you supervise and you got to tell them you're not performing well. By the way, um, I'll give a plug here for the book, First Break All the Rules. I remember the vice president of uh, Starbucks years ago, years ago, gave me that book, and it helped me tremendously with having some of those tough conversations. Um, and I think part of it was allowing other people to really feel open, giving me feedback or providing a way for other people to provide feedback that was unfiltered, so to speak. Um, anywho um sometimes those yeah having having some of those tough conversations and being able to hold people accountable in the right way without bringing emotion into it is a very very difficult skill yeah it is because because the first time you do it you're going to be emotional or if you don't have a if you don't have a framework or a methodology for having coaching conversations it's very hard to not bring in um, emotion bring emotion to the table 
Yeah. You might be nervous. You might not know how to do it. You might be insecure about having the conversation. There might be all kinds of things. I've never done this before. What if they get mad? What if they do this? I don't want, and then it turns into an argument and it's not, a, it's not a coaching conversation or it's not a difficult or whatever it is. Tough conversation. So. Yeah. Well, um, or similar when you manage a young team and they say, Oh, we're all going to happier. You should come. A lot of people have noticed that I never go to those things. They asked, they've asked me why. And I said, because I'm your boss and well, like, Oh, well, we can all go to happy hour. I'm like, I don't agree, you know, with the, that there is, there needs to be a balance between I'm the boss and we, I need to help you guys get things done. And if I, if I am acting less than that, I don't know how I can continue to be your boss effectively. Interesting. The completely makes sense. Just, um, I don't know if I was ever in that. I'm just, uh, anyways, no point in going there. Third one, third thing. So we've got the third big thing. Um, I guess I would, I would say is carve out time for self-improvement. A lot of people don't realize the value of continued education. I've been through school and I've done, but it's a lifetime of learning and not just in IT, but in every field more now in IT because of how mm. fast things are changing, but you, you have to mm. curve out time for certification. You have to read books. You have to go to webinars. You have to continue, oh. continue reading publications. And you have to seek out groups that you can buy into and work with and get, you know, get and give feedback. I think where a lot of people I love that you said that because it's like the perfect ending to a show because, and that's what we do here. And all you have to do is listen to this podcast and continually educate. And maybe we'll provide you some more, more stuff like that, but uh, keep going. Um, I, I think that the, I think that younger people are so interested in climbing the ladder that, that they, oh. they miss the chance to like achieve like the, the greatness beyond what the ladder looks like. Right. And some of it comes from work ethic experience, but too many times we've had staff that grow out of the, the company grows too fast forward and they can't grow with us because they stop wanting to learn. Wow. Hmm. Well, time to have uh, go back to point number two and have that tough conversation. And um, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, This has been a pleasure um, talking with you. Actually, quite um, very, 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 uh, very beneficial and uh, had many aha moments. Uh, Very thankful to have you on the show. And we'd love to have you back again in the future, especially if um, you get inside that think tank and we can think up. um, I think there's so much that was on the show that we could dig in on. I think we could dig on point one of the last three points alone or point two um alone and point three of of climbing the corporate ladder that's just kind of a um that's more about how do you be happy in life and that's a that's a huge one because i see it in my own family and everyone can probably see it in their own family as well you've seen the person that really was very driven and and looking to to climb the corporate ladder and and now they're i don't know 37 40 and are they really happy or are they just a person with um that's been going to a bunch of happy hours which is kind of interesting that you mentioned that too right because you see that a lot in corporate culture yep. you see um you just you just see a lot of that kind of um work hard play hard mentality 
And I think that's good for growing a company, but it's not good for people growing inside of a, a company necessarily. Yep, I agree. Um, thank you very much for being on the show, sir. And um, if um, anyone wants to reach out to Jim, you'd have to find him under James Ronyak on um, LinkedIn. And once again, uh, Mercatus Center of George Mason University um, think tank one step above punch cards. Quite a few steps, actually. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you again, sir, for being on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. <laughs>